This is December 20th, 2020, and uh, I'm going to tackle the matter of time and our experience of time today. Because uh, I think most of us have found ourselves in a different relationship to time this year with the pandemic. I'm going to start by just sort of laying out one person's experience of this year of loss and the passage of time. Um, I'll be reading from an article by Catherine May. She's the author of a book called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. This appeared in the New York Times uh, on November 28th. She, I'm skipping the first half, just because I have so much to fit in today. Uh, She acknowledges that she herself uh, didn't suffer the losses, the, the scale of loss that so many hundreds of thousands, millions maybe have of uh, having someone close to her die. And then she picks up there. In the absence of these things, I felt I had to wear a brave face and make the most of it. I tried to tamp down my fears that the world was carrying on without me while I stayed at home and succumbed to the fog. I felt a responsibility to be the one who coped. But that's not how this works. You cannot weigh your suffering against the endurance of others. You don't get to choose when the undertow drags you or how. It just comes and comes again, and the only option is to let it take you. The suspended anxiety of this year is not entirely unfamiliar to me. I have fallen through the cracks of life before. I've come to think of these times of life as wintering, a season outside the usual ebb and flow when the comforting bustle of everyday society falls out of reach. Most of us have been to this place. We arrive there in the wake of illness, depression, or bereavement. That darkness may yawn open during major changes like divorce or job loss. However we come to it, wintering is usually involuntary, lonely, and bitterly painful. She continues, This year has brought us into close contact with loss. Many winters have come all at once. But within these winters, there is the seed of something necessary. We tend to imagine that our lives are linear, but they are in fact cyclical. And as we grow older, we pass through phases of good health and ill, of optimism, of deep doubt, of freedom and constraint. There are times when everything seems easy 
and times when it all seems impossibly hard. Each time we endure the cycle, we learn from the previous round, and we do a few things better. This is how wisdom is made. Yeah, she's referring to the wisdom that comes to maybe most of us just, just through aging. We learn how life works to some extent. I came across these words <clears throat> attributed to uh, uh, an anonymous uh, preacher who had been a slave at one time. This is, this is what he said. Lord, we ain't what we want to be. We ain't what we ought to be. We ain't what we gonna be. But thank God, we ain't what we was. She finishes this column <clears throat> by saying, when the time arrives, we will be ready to go back into social spaces with a renewed sense of purpose, with compassion recharged. We will take better action because of it. We are learning something in this free-floating time, something about the easy way that all human life can be overturned, something about the slow heartbeat of the seasons. <clears throat> One of those things that we are learning this year is how much we take for granted. The people we take for granted. The, the freedoms, the freedoms to move about and choose as we, as we will, how we take those for granted. So this learning or this reminder uh, just itself means that this is not this year has not been one of complete loss now here's another article uh, way too long for me to read through from beginning to end uh, this appeared in New York magazine uh, on December 9th of this year <clears throat> and the name of it is uh, 2020 was a time warp now I've uh, clipped out quite a bit here uh, to read from um, I hope uh, the, the author well the author is uh, a uh, Shannon Sterone and she's a writer in the, the Bay Area of California She's written on science, culture, and technology, uh, and those her writing can be found in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wired Magazine, Long Reads, and elsewhere. So Shannon Sterone, 
uh, opens with uh, a, a few short paragraphs <clears throat> and uh, that we're going to skip and then go right on to this. <clears throat> Time itself has felt different this year. Our relationship with it altered significantly by the pandemic. Whatever comfort we once derived from considering the past from considering the past is gone. Now, it's a stark reminder of all that we had, all that we took for granted, and what we must still reckon with, that our future is not likely to look like what we're used to. Yeah, but we don't really know what it'll look like. She continues, Meanwhile, our hours and days dissolve together into some nebulous glob of experience. While time may run on a larger scale around us, we still live in our own intimate worlds. That dislocation in time has become a part of our running discourse, inspiring memes and jokes about not knowing what day it is. <clears throat> They drive home the fact that we're really truly experiencing the same phenomenon, a sort of time melt. Here's one example of, of uh, coping with that. Uh, a couple of months ago, I began uh, putting a, a sign uh, in my house, a little, I folded up a postcard, folded a postcard in half and uh, wrote the day of the week. Um, some of you know that uh, I have missed some Doksan appointments uh, and it's for this reason, just getting mixed up about the day of the week. It, for me, <clears throat> it's worse than it might have been a year ago because uh, my wife now has gone to working just three days a week. Uh, she has now Thursday and Friday off, and so that completely mixes me up, uh, having her home on those days. So I just put those two days uh, on postcard, Thursday and Friday, and it helps. It's a, it's a place in the house where I walk by it <clears throat> 50 times a day. It helps. <clears throat> she continues, as our usual markers of time vanish, the days feel as though they've been whipped through a blender. We are animals living in a social world, and as such, we've created strict routines for our lives. We wake up, take the kids to school, commute to work, take lunch breaks, go to the gym, have dinners out. Now, though, any activities we once might have participated in outside the home have been abruptly removed and we've lost the sense of time these seemingly mundane markers once provided. Let me just uh, point out also, but it also presents an opportunity for us. Um, these, uh, these routine activities of, of daily life, um, some of them we may have seen in the past as just 
little necessities we have to do on our way to something more fun or more important. They're just washing the dishes, just shoveling the snow, just showering. But now we, ha we, we can, we almost have to honor these routine activities for their own sake, not as just little, little, maybe sometimes tiresome, annoying things en route to something uh, more significant. It's a great opportunity when, when doing the dishes to just do the dishes, not to get them out of the way to go somewhere. <clears throat> uh, she continues, since the pandemic began, we've been faced with a paradox. So much has changed around us, politically, environmentally, within our own lives. But at the same time, so many of us are at home living what often feels like cloned days. This is especially challenging for humans because our brains are hardwired to do one main thing, survive. And while many of us are staying home as a means of surviving, our ingrained nature counts survival as action, prediction, and planning. So there it is, the, the, uh, the contradiction, the dissonance. And then she spends a, a, quite a few paragraphs um, looking into the science behind this... Uh, dislocation of time that so many of us are feeling. I can't read much of it. I'll just uh, summarize some of it. She, she uh, quotes a, uh, a neuroscientist and researcher at UCLA, a, a, a Dean bon, Bonomano, uh, who says, uh, time is incredibly important because in many ways, the brain's most important functions are to predict the future. Because the degree to which an animal predicts where there's going to be food, or where there's going to be a predator, or where there's going to be water, or where it's going to find a mate, determines the success of that animal. The brain is a prediction device. More on that later, but she continues, COVID-19 and its resulting effect on our lives has stifled this instinct. Even thinking about the future conjures only a strange, fuzzy block because we know neither when this will end nor how different our world will look when it does. And then she says, what we are doing is waiting. But not only waiting. Come on. When we are fully engaged with what is right before us, when we are one with what we're doing, we're not waiting. 
this is the the secret as i see it the secret to surviving this year surviving in our mental health is finding a way to be completely with what's at hand and this 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 frees us from waiting waiting implies uh, of course waiting for something which means a kind of future orientation and of course that's that's very common Waiting may well be just what most of us are doing, but we don't have to resign ourselves to waiting. There's this here now. And that's where uh, daily sitting uh, is essential to, to enable us to be fully here now. She then uh, spends quite a bit of time uh, looking back at, uh, well, she says first we need to understand what time really is. She acknowledges that that's not easy to know. And I'm really going to skip most of this. I just pick up a few things. She... uh, distinguishes between clock time uh, that's you know just ordinary conventional way of understanding time uh, between that and um, our circadian clock or rhythm that's more of a, a body knowing uh, where we're uh, we, we respond in our basic rhythms to sun and dark She goes further into uh, looking at sort of the cosmology of time, about uh, the uh, 365 day orbit of the Earth around the Sun, and the 24 hours of the uh, takes for our planet to spin around on its axis, um, and then she she presents this concept called time's arrow. She says, we know that time moves forward for a few reasons. Even that is, <laughs> that's one way to look at it. It moves forward. We'll, we'll, we'll look at other ways. Uh, the most obvious of which are that we can remember the past and not the future, and that we don't get younger, we grow older. Just, just to insert that, yes, yes, uh, but... There is something in us that doesn't age, is beyond old and young. It's our our fundamental awareness, our our mind of awareness. It's it doesn't age. The the body and yes, our ordinary mind, our brain determined mind ages but there is something beyond that awareness one way to understand this awareness is is buddha itself 
um, the word Buddha really can mean our fundamentally enlightened awareness, but even just, you can even see it as just awareness, maybe with a capital A, that isn't, it's beyond mindfulness or lack of mindfulness. What is that? What is that that is beyond time? She gets into the topic of entropy, uh, which is uh, basically a disorder, a process of things going out of order, out of their ordinary order. She, she compares ice and water and steam, uh, ice being the lowest entropy state, uh, steam being the highest. It can't resist pulling out a phrase uh, from the Hakuin chant, uh, Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen, where he says, like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. We can see ice as the, the self in its limited state small s self, our, our self as bound. Um, and water as our true self, with uh, meaning no self, it has no fixed nature to it. We're not fixed, we're not bound. Water is fluid, water is free. Uh, seeking its own level. To the degree that we are not caught in thoughts of self or the, or the I, the me, or the my, then we are like water. We're not blocked like ice. She, she mentions, she says, that the very young universe too began in a more ordered, low entropy state. And as it expands, as the extreme heat from the Big Bang cools off, and as things mix together, the overall entropy increases. This might seem like a bad thing, but it's not. This state of change is required for all life, and without it, the universe would reach a state of equilibrium and, ultimately, its own end. Here, too, we can apply this to each one of us, uh, that without change, we're not alive. And we, the universe, would reach a state of, would come to an end. 
She says, when things stop changing, time's arrow stops moving forward. Well, <laughs> where, when, when is that? Where will that ever be, where things stop changing? I'm going to switch over to uh, Zen Master Dogen now, 13th century great Japanese Zen Master Dogen. In, uh, in his famous treatise on, called Being Time. This, uh, this translation appears in the Three Pillars of Zen. Uh, it's surely one of the... It is the most abstruse uh, segment in the whole book, which, uh, the Three Pillars of Zen, which is largely based on practice, it's oriented to practice. But uh, this being time, in this, in this essay, Dogen offers uh, quite a different way of understanding time, other than as an arrow moving forward. I'll just pluck out here a, a passage. This is Dogen. You may think that that mountain and that river are things of the past. He refers to uh, wading through a river and crossing a mountain. You may think that that mountain and that river are things of the past, that I have left them behind and am now living in this palatial building. They are as separate from me as heaven is from earth. However, the truth has another side. When I climbed the mountain and crossed the river, I was time. Time must needs be with me. I have always been. Time cannot leave me. When time is not regarded as a phenomenon which ebbs and flows, the, the time I climb the mountain is the present moment of being time. When time is not thought of as coming and going, this moment is absolute time for me. So, yeah, when time is not thought of, <coughs> that's the key. Thoughts. Time, as it is conventionally understood, time is a concept, a thought, a conceptual structure that we have as human beings that we have created. But as Dogen says, that there's the other side of that is when we are beyond thought. And that is timelessness. And we all have access to this realm, this realm of timelessness. This, it's eternity. Do you want to know what eternity is? Be, get free of thoughts. 
get three free of thoughts of time or anything at all. Samadhi is eternity. Again, Hakuin. Now the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Cause and effect is sequence. Cause and effect is bound to time. But it's only half the coin. I think one reason that that this year has been so deeply unsettling to so many people is maybe, maybe because they have known only this world of conventional time, the arrow, past, present, future, moving forward. And uh, even, even in our sitting, in the... In Zen uh, sitting, it can be unsettling when we first slip the bounds of time. Here, but there, we have some kind of preparation. We've been sitting usually before we reach that state. But for so many people, most people probably, uh, there is little preparation. And now suddenly people feel adrift. People feel as though they've lost their moorings, which again offers us some real freedom. But it's hard, isn't it? Now, um, moving on to page four of her article, she, she picks up here. We are a future-facing future facing species. Even our memories are designed to help us predict the future. So she's going back to what this neurologist said, that our brains are wired to predict the future. Fair enough. No, we can't argue that as far as our brain capacity. She says, we have storage of past experiences that are, on a biological level, designed to inform our decisions. If you once touched a hot stove and burned yourself, you know not to do it again. This goes against how we understand our memory. We think of it as something that belongs solely to the past, or perhaps the present. But our memories, above all, are not about the past. They are for our future. Our brains know to do anything we can to stay alive while also planning out the next steps. Of all the things COVID-19 has taken from us, this might, abstractly, be one of the biggest sources of anguish. We've lost not only the present, but our sense of the future as well. Okay, fair enough as far as a conventional understanding of of time, but 
have we lost our sense of the future? The Buddha was once asked about his future life. This is in India where reincarnation is taken for granted. And he saw the danger of dwelling in thoughts about future lives or past lives. And this is what he said. If you want to know what you were in the past, look at yourself now. If you want to know what you'll be in the future, look at yourself now. So there. Do we need a sense of the future beyond right now? How we act and respond and react in our daily lives? That's it. That's the future. And same with the past. How much more than that do we need to know? And it, and it, and it brings us back to what the, the whole point of meditation is, is to live fully in the present and see now, here, who we are what we are, what we're, how, we're, how we're functioning, how this mind is working, how we are acting and reacting. That is, predicts the future, as well as reflecting the past. She continues... Uh, We've spent this time largely inside messes with our internal clocks, which is why March felt like it was a year long and how it is also suddenly December, but it was only just April and somehow today is Wednesday and also seems like Monday, but who even knows? I ran across the term blurs day referring to this pandemic confusion she uh she goes back to this this neurological understanding of our our nature she says, our nature is to create the future. Again, maybe from a cognitive science perspective, but isn't, isn't our nature most more fundamentally to wonder seems to me that is more more of what distinguishes the human state is to have the capacity to wonder to question to reflect
And then she again goes back looking sort of at how human beings evolved. She begins, Before modern humans had the ability to count past ten, age did not exist. I ran across some words by the great black baseball player, Satchel Paige, great, great pitcher, who said, How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? There again, that realm of pure awareness that is beyond age. Skipping some more paragraphs here, she says, No matter how far back we look in human history, there has always been room for us to forge new relationships with this most valuable, most mysterious, and most fundamental thing. Referring to time. Just as it has always been and will always be, time is a paradox. We move through time wishing to grasp onto our most valuable moments. The first kiss, the new love, a special meal, a new city. Whatever those moments are that we cherish, the more they seem to slip through our fingers like sand. Yet as we exist within those seconds, so acutely aware of our grounding in the present, the future will beckon as though in echo, prodding us, leaving us wondering, will we get to keep this? Will this love stay? Will I get to come back to this place? And we will think, I must do what I can to make it so. This is the very human, human, richly, fundamentally human aspect of our nature. This longing that comes from attachment. We, we become attached to things that are meaningful to us, even just sense experiences, pleasurable sense experiences. And we want to keep them. We want to revisit them. This even happens in sitting itself, where we may have a fleeting uh, sense of freedom from our thoughts. That's always what freedom means. Freedom from our thoughts. And then it passes. The thoughts crowd back in. And we want to retrieve that spaciousness, that freedom of no thought. Of course we do. There's an an author uh, by the name of Alan Lichtman. He wrote a book called The Accidental Universe in 2014. And I'm going to read this because he says it so well, This the human state. 
I don't know why we long so for permanence, why the fleeting nature of things so disturbs. With futility we cling to the old wallet long after it has fallen apart. We visit and revisit the old neighborhood where we grew up, searching for the remembered grove of trees and the little fence. We clutch our old photographs. In our churches and synagogues and mosques, we pray to the everlasting and eternal. Yet in every nook and cranny, nature screams at the top of her lungs that nothing lasts, that it is all passing away. All that we see around us, including our own bodies, is shifting and evaporating and one day will be gone. Well, if this sounds bleak to you, luckily, there's something you can do about it, which is learn through this Zen practice, and I don't mean just sitting, learn through Zen practice to be with the change as it happens. Then it's not something outside us, something threatening, or tragic. She, she continues, um, and she now she is mo moving more off the idea of linear time. She says, real time is a tree's rings, a labyrinth. Real time is in stellar remnants, in letters, in books, in red and black paint etched on cave walls. It is love in beginnings, in your tea, in chaos. It is endings. It is everything, just as we are everything. Now she's starting to approach Dogen's understanding. I'll read just a little bit more of Dogen. This again is from Being Time. The traces of the ebb and flow of time are so evident that we do not doubt them. Yet, though we do not doubt them, we ought not to conclude that we understand them. Human beings are changeable, at one time questioning what they do not understand, and at another time no longer questioning the same thing. So their former questionings do not always coincide with their present ones. The questioning alone, for its duration, is time. Uh, 
here in, in the later part of this essay, do not regard time as merely flying away. Do not think that flying away is its sole function. For time to fly away, there would have to be a separation between it and things. Because you imagine that time only passes, you do not learn the truth of being time. In a word, every being in the entire world is a separate time in one continuum. And since being is time, I am my being time. In other words, each of us is time. We, we, we can't get away from it. We're not apart from it. We're only apart from it if we conceptualize it as something, as a thing. So we have this marvelous, marvelous tool, this method of Sazen by which to free ourselves from time. Most of this article that this author is discussing in terms of science and evolution and development of the brain and so forth, this is all just the one side of the coin. What about that other side? It's, it's right here at hand. All it takes is complete absorption in the practice we're working on, and that is our portal to the eternal. We can't deny either side of the coin. Of course, we live with the demands of time we have to get to places on time. We have to do things on time. We have deadlines. But it's a, it's a, a very limited, tiresome experience of, of life to be, see only that side. When we see the other side, the timelessness, then this side of time, linear time, becomes much easier to bear. We, we can go through these cycles as we have this year of time melting, spreading out, becoming diffuse and confusing, and then freezing again. Time freezes when we are caught in concepts of time. When we're sitting, if we're thinking about the time, and this every beginner knows this, is thinking about how much longer we have to sit before we can get up. Well, this is the most foolish thing to do. We learn, we learn especially in Sashim, but even outside Sashim, we learn that that's the worst thing we can do uh, with, with the mind is 
be dwelling in ideas about how much time is left, how much time we've gotten through, or to broaden it some, how much how much longer it'll take us to come to awakening, how much how long we've been sitting, how long we've been at this practice. This is just to invite misery. There is another way. And that way is to lose ourselves. Because each one of us is time, when we lose ourselves in this practice, we lose time in the best sense. We're released from time. And losing ourselves doesn't, isn't, doesn't have to be just while sitting. The whole point is to bring this, this mind, of this, this undivided mind that we work on in our sitting, to bring it into our daily lives. And that's what will help us survive this year with more composure, more stability. She just, just another couple short paragraphs here. As we approach another significant marker of time, the new year, we are faced with a real challenge. How do we contend with our nature, which fundamentally longs to predict the future and to protect and plan for it, while we face an indeterminate bleeding together of days? Again, our nature is not limited to predicting the future. She says, maybe it can be of some comfort to us all to know that the nagging undercurrent of bewilderment, fear, sadness, and anxiety are there for more than the obvious reasons and are truly part of a natural collective experience. We are in a profound moment of being human. As time is changing, devolving even, we know at least that it is still taking us forward. <laughs> yeah, yes and no. <laughs> I circled this word, it. We know at least that it is still taking us forward. How can there be an it out there when we understand that we are time? Well, our Time is up, so we'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 